insights, solutions, and networking all come together at RSA Conference. Join a global cybersecurity community at rsaconference.com forward slash ITSP MAG24. Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new Redefining Cybersecurity podcast with Sean Martin. Have you ever thought that we're selling cybersecurity insincerely, buying it indiscriminately, and deploying it ineffectively? Well, perhaps we are. Let's look at how we can organize a successful information security program that integrates business culture with people, process, and technology to drive growth and protect business value. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at imperva.com. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com. This is Sean Martin, host of the Redefining Cybersecurity Podcast here on the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network, where I have the pleasure of chatting with uh, loads of smart people that uh, know much more than me about lots of things. Uh, there, there are no no lack of domain <laughs> domains to cover in cybersecurity and risk management, and add privacy and, and advanced tech to them to the mix, and it gets pretty crazy pretty quickly. And um, today. Uh, I'm, I'm thrilled. This is we, you, those watching will see that uh, Julie Haney's on. She's been on the show before, and and uh, she kindly agreed to have a semi-regular sub-series here on redefining cybersecurity. No commitments in terms of how often or what topics, but the point is there there is a domain around um, human centered cybersecurity and looking at the human elements of cybersecurity, which uh, Julie and her team uh, excel at at NIST and work with a lot of people uh, to help that program excel and uh, help organizations uh, succeed in their programs. And uh, this is the first of those. <laughs> so I'm, I'm thrilled to have this uh, this conversation. She brings something very special with her to help us talk about uh, the cyber insurance and the role of the human element in cyber insurance. Uh, so Julie, I'm gonna pass the mic to you, a few words about yourself, what you do at NIST, and then uh, over to Jason for, for what he's up to. Yeah, thanks, Sean. Thanks for, for having me. Um, so I, as John mentioned, I'm Julie Haney. Um, I lead the human-centered cybersecurity program at NIST. Um, where we look at all things related to the human element, a lot of those non-technical things that we see in cybersecurity and how we improve cybersecurity experiences and outcomes um, for people. Um, so for a number of years, um, I've been a big fan of um, Dr. Jason Nurse and his research. Uh, I think I once called myself a Jason Nurse groupie. <laughs> So um, when I started doing research um, a number of years ago, some of his research in um, this human-centered cybersecurity area was inspirational to me. And I've always found that his group's research has real practical application. Um, and so I thought uh, more people should have the opportunity to hear about um, what he and his group um, are doing. Um, so with that, I will ask Jason to introduce yourself. Just tell us a little bit about what you do and, and how you got there. Hey, thanks. Thanks very much, uh, Sean and Julie, for the introduction. Uh, really, really delighted to be here. Uh, so my name is Jason Nurse, and I am a reader in cybersecurity at the University of Kent in the UK. Um, for, for US folks listening in, uh, reader might sound like a really odd title for an academic, but basically reader, I believe, um, translates in the US to sort of uh, like professor, I think professor without a chair, if you know what any of those words mean. 
Uh, for those of you that are not in academia at all, just think of me as another academic that likes to research some really interesting stuff. Uh, so a lot of my work has focused on the human aspect of cybersecurity, as Julie mentioned. Um, I'm really passionate about understanding why humans act as the way they act in the context of security. Um, I won't lie, security is a complex topic, and I know I really believe that we we need to to get security to a place where it, it isn't a bother for people. It, they don't look at security and get turned off or get frustrated. And it's it's sort of security isn't seen as a department of no. You know, like this is this is always one thing that I'm I'm really passionate about and really focused on. But in addition to that, what I also do is focus on basically research that's interdisciplinary as it relates to cybersecurity. So topics such as cyber insurance, topics such as um, behavior change, topics such as uh, cybersecurity and policy, cybersecurity and politics, cybersecurity, international relations. So I do, I do kind of, I do have sort of have a wide, quite wide uh, remit in terms of stuff that I'm interested in. But yeah, very happy to delve into any of those, and especially the topic of cyber insurance. Awesome. Thanks for being here, Jason. Um, so yeah, let's let's dive into cyber insurance. So what what's the main purpose of cyber insurance? Why why is this becoming increasingly popular in in recent years? Yeah, so the, the key thing about cyber insurance, and the way I love to explain it is, you know, think of phone or car or home insurance. And the, the gist of it is that if you have home insurance, or the reason you buy home insurance is that it, 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 it kicks in to protect you in situations where things go really bad. So, you know, you have your home, uh, you come home one day or you wake up one morning and you see that all of a sudden your kitchen is flooded. You know, what's happened there? How do you respond? How do you respond quickly? Often people uh, will call up their insurer and, and basically look, seek seek some support, but in general, uh, insurance is about this idea of residual risk. You put things in place to deal with pro potential problems, but in the situations where things actually go horribly wrong, insurance often kicks in. And in cyber, this is exactly what, what it is. Um, so the basic idea is that an organization would buy cyber insurance, would purchase cyber insurance policy, much like you know you and you or myself would purchase a home insurance or car insurance policy. And in the situation where an organization is breached, they've um, lost personal lost data, they've been exposed in some particular way, basically they've suffered a cyber attack. The idea is that in that scenario, they can call up their their insurance company and basically receive some support. There's a variety of different support depending on the insurer. Um, some insurers offer like immediate um, support in terms of putting you in contact with incident response companies, digital forensics companies, PR companies to you know help you determine what should you say, who should you say it to, you know how do you navigate the the um, the regulatory landscape wherever you are, especially depending on where your customers are um, in terms of who has been impacted. So cyber insurance really kicks in there. And that's where really, especially around this idea of data breach and data breach notification, that's where it came from. And that was this general, the initial motivation for cyber insurance. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious, Jason, because sometimes, and I know it's probably faulty thinking on my part, because <laughs> as I'm sitting here thinking what you're describing and thinking of the broader insurance market, I, I still have this thought that cyber insurance is the backstop or the backup plan for when things go bad. And therefore we can let some risk fly um, mm -hmm. that maybe we wouldn't otherwise consider because we have insurance that, 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 that doesn't necessarily translate, right? I, I don't drive more recklessly than I normally do because yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have insurance, yeah. right? Or different, different policies or different levels of coverage. So I, I can't see that that really translates to there, but what impact has cyber insurance had on programs, posture, response, uh, all the things that, that this touches? Yeah, so really good question. And you know, your, your skepticism isn't, isn't unwarranted. Uh, many individuals, and they've been, so I, I first got into cyber insurance research around uh, 2014, 2013, 14. And at that point in time, when I was sort of reading through the bits of research that were out there in the space at that point in time, one of the big questions was around moral hazard and around the fact that why would someone invest in security when they can just go buy cyber insurance? So in other words, behave as badly as possible. And if an attack does happen, oh, we have a cyber insurance policy. 
But just like you kind of highlighted, the, I have a car, I have a car insurance policy, but that doesn't mean I'm going to drive recklessly. It just doesn't work like that. Part of it because is because, um, especially when it comes to organizations and businesses, the average person that works for a business doesn't want to treat that business recklessly um, because, especially because it'll, it, the, the eventual impact will fall back on them in some regard. They'll lose their job. Their employer will be will maybe shut down. All these kind of things could potentially could eventually be fired. So all that kind of stuff kicks into play. What we've seen uh, more so is that cyber insurance has had uh, a bit of a positive impact in some in some particular regards on people on organization security posture. And that's an interesting thing, simply because so some of my in, initial research about two about two or so years ago, we asked exactly this question. We tried to figure out. Can cyber insurance be an incentive for better security practices within organizations? Because we were seeing course of bits and, and tidbits of research, tidbits of articles, some news stories talking about cyber insurance. Is it a good thing or a bad thing for security? And what we sort of found out in our study, which, which involves speaking to, I think about almost, almost 100 security and, and, cyber insurance, and cyber insurance practitioners, what we found was that um, cyber insurance can actually really help cybersecurity. And the, the, the gist of it is that as an organization comes to an insurer and organization says, hey, so for example, Sean, if I come to you and I say, hey, Sean, I, I'm a company and I want to buy cyber insurance from you, you will typically say, okay, let tell me a bit about your security. And maybe I tell you, okay, you know what, my security is rubbish. You'll respond often and say, okay, well, goodbye, see you later, not interested. So what actually happens more often than not is um, if I say my security is bad, uh, or if I say my security is this level, you might actually respond and say, okay, you know what, I might consider underwriting you. However, you have to do X, Y, and Z in terms of security. I think that's where it can be particularly valuable. It provides this, this avenue, it provides this sort of uh, platform to nudge companies into behaving a bit more securely. Or in, in, in the similar type of scenario, Let's say you do, you do decide to underwrite me, but I'm not really doing great in security. You might say, but you know what, Jason, if you implement X, Y, and Z security, if you implement the NIST cybersecurity framework, or if you implement ISO 27001, or you know, whatever security practice, then I might give you a, a reduction on your premium. So instead of paying $10,000, I might make you pay $7,000. So that sort of was some of the initial gist of how cyber insurance can actually gently nudge companies uh, to, to ha have a better security practice. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that, that sounds very positive. And as a, um, unfortunately, a glasses half empty type of person sometimes, I'm wondering, have there been any negative impacts of, of cyber insurance on the market? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, unfortunately, yes. Uh, and the reality is there's been, um, even though it's something anecdotal, even though it's been anecdotal to some extent, it's probably worth mentioning in that because, let's take the example of ransomware. So ransomware is an extremely hot topic now. Um, everyone is talking about it. Every Everyone is trying to, uh, governments across the world are trying to nudge organizations, you know, please take your ransomware seriously. Bolster, bolster your cyber resilience because attackers are coming and if they hit you, you can be offline potentially permanently. And what we saw, especially in the early days of, of, of ransomware attacks is that um, attackers were basically trying to um, hit organizations that they knew had cyber insurance. Um, and we saw some anecdotal evidence around this. Some attackers were actually coming online, coming uh, publicly and saying, hey, we actually especially go after organizations that have cyber insurance because we know that they can pay out. And we know that they have the fund, the funds. And this is an interesting question, and it's one we actually got a chance to delve into a bit more. But the idea here was that because attackers, because in, in, uh, an organization has an insurance policy, they could potentially draw down on that to pay out a, a, pay out a ransom. So what we did see, um, to some extent, was some attackers basically trying to leverage that to nudge organizations to pay out. Now, I don't think it's necessarily that clear cut, so there have been sort of other, other bits to consider, definitely. Um, but I think cyber insurance has been overall good, but of course there are these sort of, uh, let's say nuances where it doesn't work as perfectly. And, and even this idea of, as I mentioned just now, even this idea of um, using of cyber insurance to nudge better security practices, 
even that doesn't always work well, simply because um, if I go to 10 insurers, they might tell me, they might tell me, or they may request 10 different security um, profiles or 10 different security postures. So as an organization, it's really difficult for me at times to understand what does good security look like? And insurers themselves are struggling a bit with that, to be honest, because each insurer will not be necessarily sure what good security practice looks like or will have a slightly different opinion. And arguably what you might find is that in some situations, insurers might prioritize security controls that are actually, that they can see are offering, let's say, best value based on reducing the number of claims or reducing the size of attacks. But these might actually conflict to, let's say the government, uh, a government decides, okay, everyone should use ISO 27000 or everyone should use NIST CSF. An insurer might arguably say, actually, maybe don't worry about that too much because we actually find that if you implement these three controls, these actually reduce the majority of our risk. So these are the only three ones that we're going to ask for. So I think that's also an interesting dynamic when we think about cyber insurance versus all the other stuff in the context of security. And then I'm wondering, Jason, I don't know, maybe it was 15. I can't remember how long it's been since I turned from uh, product manager to journalist, <laughs> marketing <laughs> journalist. But one of my first uh, areas of coverage, and I want to say it's around 15 years ago now, uh, was around cyber insurance. And one of the big talking points was, I'll, ca I'll call it the maturity level or the lack thereof maturity mm -hmm. level for this space. Yeah. Um, and the main point within that is the lack of, uh, of data, right? To, um, to determine what's a good risk, what's a bad risk, what's a good policy, what are good coverages and that kind of thing. Um, I know we've done a lot or the industry's done a lot. Um, companies that are insured and the insurers and the underwriters, they've all matured tremendously in the last 15 years, but we're far from perfect. So I'm wondering what, what are some of the challenges that still, does that still exist? And are there any other challenges that this, uh, this world faces at the moment? Yeah, great questions. Um, I think data is a big one. Um, data is massive because the reality is that insurers, um, they focus and they, a lot of their business is driven by data and reliable data. If we look at um, the cyber insurance industry versus national um, national disaster, sorry, the cyber insurance industry versus um, the, the, the insurance industry focusing on national disasters or floods or burglary, you know, an insurer will be able to tell you with a relatively good certainty, if you park a car on this road between this hour and this hour, how likely it is to get burgled. But they'll be able to tell you with good certainty of that because that's, that, that insight is what they need to determine a premium, right? To, in security, we don't have that yet. And one of the big challenges actually in security is because the, the nature of, of cyber is so dynamic. It changes so quickly. It changes immensely quickly compared to other insurance lines. And because of that, it, it forces insurers, it basically moves insurers out of their comfort zone, one. And then two, it forces insurers to really think very carefully about what data they need. And it, 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 force, it forces them to try to build up this data, unfortunately, over a long, long period of time. Now, one thing that even complicates that even further is the reality that cyber is, as I mentioned, just so dynamic. Today, the massive threat is ransomware. There is no guarantee that tomorrow or next week, something won't sort of emerge that sort of blows ransomware out of, you know, you know, blows ransomware away and all of a sudden there's a new threat. Gen AI is a really good example of that. Generative AI and what's happening there. There's a lot of questions around, is Gen AI going to take over? Is Gen AI, I mean, take, sorry, not take over the world. <laughs> is Gen AI going to take over um, in terms of being a significant threat for, for businesses, for organizations? Are attackers going to start to use threat uh, um, Gen AI, or you know, are we going to see attackers they're creating their own GPTs uh, that create malware? We've already seen, I think, one or two. I think Worm GPT was one of one of them that have pops popped up already. So I think the reality here is that because the 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 environment can change so quickly, insurers also struggle to deter to basically properly characterize that risk to the extent that they can actually write policies with a good level of certainty. And around the early days of ransomware, what we saw with exactly this, this issue is that insurers, some insurers 
were making significant losses um, because of our underwriting organizations and they were paying out um, uh, to cover uh, ransomware attacks. And they were staying in the game, they were staying in the industry. And the reason we're doing that is to try to get more data on, okay, what is ransomware? How, how significant is it? And, but eventually many, many insurers had to step back because the losses were too significant. So this idea of data is, is essential, it's critical. I, I did some work actually a couple of years ago trying to understand the extent to which, because I, I'm fully aware of how significant data is, was trying to understand the extent to which insurers might come together and actually sort of almost create a pre-competitive data set. So every insurer sort of pour into this one data set so that we can be able to say, okay, using this data set, we all can use it however we want, but using this data set, we can actually better understand cyber risk. We could better understand the impact of security controls. We could better understand how effective one security control is versus another control. There was no appetite for it because the reality at that point was that every insurer viewed their insight as a competitive advantage. So it, it, the, the insurance industry was not there yet. Yeah, I was. I was wondering. Um, I mean, that, that's that's super interesting. Um, yeah, because if you think of like like life insurance, they have like a lot more data, as you mentioned. So you mentioned different security controls that that different insurers might prioritize those. How do they? How do insurers make sure that organizations are actually implementing those controls that they say they are, and that they kind of maintain that level of security over time? Yeah. The, the reality is that uh, some insurers just sort of trust. Uh, they trust that an organization is going to do it. Um, one of the realities as well is insurers may elect organizations, like, so, okay, every, say every year you'll sign up and you'll say, yes, okay, take the box saying that you do X, Y, Z, okay, or implement A, B, and C controls. Now, let's say um, a breach occurs. And let's say in the post-mortem, the digital forensics firms find out or and, and identify that actually um, you said that two-factor authentication was on all admin accounts, but that was not at all the case. Then one of the realities is that an insurer could decide they're not paying out. Right? So the the because at that in that regard, the company was essentially not being truthful or honest to the insurer, which you know, as we all know, in terms of insurance, immediately invalidates the policy. So that's one thing that could potentially happen. Uh, another thing that insurers have, have started to, to try to do is, um, so here in the UK, and I assume it's, it's in, I'm sure it's, it must be an international thing as well. Um, in terms of, once again, if you use the analogy of car insurance, um, when an, if an insurer is, let's say, a little bit unsure, a car insurer, automobile insurer, is a little bit unsure about an, uh, an individual, a driver, uh, they could be a bit risky, we're not sure. Um, but you know what, let's write them, let's underwrite them. What typically the insurer might say is, we're going to install a black box on your car. And essentially this black box monitors how fast you drive, where you are, how dangerous your driving is, and it monitors various different um, aspects of, of the individual's um, basically driving. And maybe at the end of every month, a premium, the premium might change. Because the premium might change, because the, the idea here is that the monitoring is happening live, so the insurer can make better decisions on how risky the person is. So if the person is less risky, maybe the premium might go down. If the person is more risky, maybe the premium might go up. Or, or when it comes to renewal, they might not be renewed. And what we're seeing actually inside of insurance is a little bit of that. Some insurers are offering a, let's say, a, vir a, a virtual black box to sit on the network to better understand um, what threat or, or the extent to which um, there's threats or there is, let's say, bad security behavior on an organization's network. In addition to this, what the black box sometimes can also do is help quickly pick up potential intrusions. So that's the sort of flip side in that the, the insurer might say, hey, we have this installed. One, it of course allows us to monitor just to see your security profile, your security posture. Two, it also can help flag up um, any potential threats based on our own intelligence. Uh, and I think both of these potentially can work together and that's how insurers get the insight into, into organizations. One other quick thing I'll mention, which I've actually which I've seen much more um, occurring quite a bit actually over the last year or so, is close partnerships between insurance companies and security companies. And this is an interesting one because, and I believe a lot of it is, it, 
it, in some regards, it makes perfect sense. And a lot of it is driven by the fact that insurers need data. Uh, security companies have data. Um, and it's a really, it can be a really good uh, mix of expertise because for some, I mean, Sean, you mentioned it as well. Um, one of the realities is that for some insurers, they don't have the expertise in cyber yet. I remember about, this is probably going back a little while now, probably about uh, six or seven years ago, uh, I had the I had the pleasure to, to speak at a conference, uh, a cyber insurance conference in, in Paris. And I think what was super interesting about that was there were a lot of people in the room that underwrote, that underwrote cyber insurance and that were in the cyber insurance space, but very, very few people actually had the security expertise. So they had written other, other insurance lines and they were sort of uh, looped into cyber because cyber is becoming a thing. But when you, had, when you, when you engage them in the context of security attacks, um, understanding that's even the baseline level of understanding when it comes to security, uh, whether it be underwriters or brokers that didn't have the expertise. And I actually worry quite a bit if, if, if uh, you know, the state of the, the cyber insurance market in terms of expertise for in brokers and, and, and insurers. I'm sure it's getting better, but I'm not sure where it is as yet. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. I've actually seen some security companies that offer cyber insurance <laughs> as mm. well. And it, it almost, it's almost our main almost our main product in some cases, but certainly some that offer protections and response capabilities that also offer the insurance. Um, and I want to go back to that, to the black box example, because that to me, even the controls in many cases are technical controls, looking for technical threats, dealing with, uh, yeah, technical uh, attacks, right? So that kind of, it's all technical stuff, right? We're going to, we're going to look for this threat, identify it and block it. That's all sitting on the network, sitting on machines. And then there's the human that does stuff many times, not even through a computer. Um, mm. I had Sean Tumon, I haven't published the episode, episode yet, but he, he works for a law firm. Uh, we talked a little bit about cyber insurance. He mentioned that Ransomware has changed to some degree with respect to cyber insurance. Fewer, fewer claims for that, and almost a, an increase in in uh, business email compromise and uh, and payment fraud. So those those things end up occurring out of band, away from traditional security controls. So I'm wondering how how you view the role of cyber insurance, understanding human behavior on and off a device, on and off a network, on and off company stuff versus personal stuff at home, an executive uh, working at home on their own local network without the protections of the, of the corporate controls, um, still under the guise of, of that company's insurance program, perhaps. So human behavior. I love the black box because it, yes, it's probably looking plugged into the bus. It's looking at some of the details of the car mm. speed and things like that, but it perhaps in a smart car, it could look at the person's facial expressions. Um, electric car I, I know has this capability, right? You can look at their facial expressions, listen to the, the old crap moments when they're about hitting, about to hit the brakes, right? And, and hear that they were talking on the phone beforehand. That's a behavior that they can monitor hmm. through these devices. We don't have that same level of monitoring, perhaps. So how does the human factor, the human behavior come into play here uh, from a cyber insurance perspective? I don't know um, if there are other areas of, of insurance that, that we can learn from there, but what, what's the state of that, I guess, is my main question. Yeah, uh, it's it's something that I haven't seen uh, emerge massively, uh, if I'm honest. Um, the reality is that often in some of these regards, it's especially for insurers, um, it's easier to, to monitor or to measure the technical elements. So um, a company's, uh, let's say, number of open ports or what ports are open uh, or what files have been clicked on. And so it's, it is, it's, let's say, easy to measure from that perspective and then therefore create a security posture for a company, which then leads to uh, premiums, et cetera. It's easy to measure that. The human element 
is more challenging for, for, for certainly. The, the area that I've seen most pop up most, to be honest, from, from insurers is engaging more with companies to help offer what we call um, pre-breach services. So, so to your question, I haven't seen much of it uh, and it's really a significant threat. I think um, insurers know it's a threat. Uh, our insurers know it's of, it's of concern. And I think what I've seen insurers trying to do is once again, these idea of pre-breach services, and I'll just explain that now. So the, the gist is that insurance traditionally, it would kick in after something bad happens. Uh, so if uh, a breach happens, you would call up your insurer, they would provide you support. Now, what I've seen is that the insurers that are actually really good, they are really, really keen to support an organization in terms of their security from beginning to end. So what they try to, what they aim to do is, if, an or, if they set up an organization, they will say, okay, we're gonna make a number of services, of security services available to you to bolster your security posture. One of these services that I've seen being, being offered is security awareness and training programs, especially organizations that don't have it. Uh, and these insurers basically say, we know that from our, from, usually from our analysis of claims, from our analysis of data, from our monitoring of the, the environment, we know that uh, the, the human element is of significant concern for most organizations. And therefore, as a part of our services, as a part of our policy to you, we are offering you this, or we will, or we will recommend that you train your people using this platform or this service. Uh, and that's how they try to integrate it. But in general, there's not much more that I've seen after that, to be honest. I think probably at this point in time, the insurance industry is really just trying to it's really getting sort of getting itself into gear. It's starting to better understand security, starting to better understand threats, starting to better understand attacks. Uh, as Julie and I were talking about just now, even better understanding effectiveness. Uh, I worked on a project a couple of years ago, and the primary aim of the project, we had one aim, it's a couple of years of, for a project. Um, how do organizations, or how can we better understand how effective security controls are? And personally, I don't believe the security industry has a perfect understanding of that in terms of what's an effective security control. If we put this security control, if we have two security controls, how do we determine which are, are and, and you know, relatively good conference, which, or which control is the most effective at actually helping? And I think that is really, really critical because for an insurer, they need to know that. Insurer will know that um, a particular lock on a door is more effective than the next lock on a door because it can be shown very clearly that you know this lock is weaker, this lock can be barged open, this lock doesn't have two catches or doesn't have three catches. In security, we don't really have that yet. Uh, and of course, it's, it's even much more complicated by the fact that uh, in security, when it comes to security products, when it comes to products or, 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 or most, um, most software, we, it is an additional complexity of patching. Today, a piece, of, a piece of software might be secure. Tomorrow, there might be a zero day that's found. And then all of a sudden, this software that everyone thought was secure now is completely insecure. And if you don't patch by tomorrow, you know, your entire environment could be vulnerable to compromise. This is the reality that we live in. Yeah, I want, I want to go back a little bit about, you're talking about pre-breach pre services. And I was thinking that the organizations that could benefit most from those are the small businesses that don't have, for example, you know, dedicated security staff um, that might not be as aware of risks. And I was wondering, how are small businesses using cyber insurance? Are they buying them? Can they, can they afford these policies in the first place? Hmm. Yeah, so they could at one point in time. Uh, they can't so much now, or they can't so much less over the last year or so. And a lot of the challenge simply has been because, because of ransomware, um, and in part even because of COVID. Because remember that for many insurers, cyber insurance was part of the business that they had, but they were doing other things as well. Uh, you know, many insurers haven't spun up initially as they're a big cyber insurer, they write other parts of, of insurance and they have added a cyber line. Now, the reality is that COVID 
stretch many insurers um, in terms of paying out for business interruption, paying out for various other things, which meant that there was much more stress on their finances. And when we think about ransomware in particular, with insurers once again paying out quite early on, um, once again, there was much more stress on their finances. So the reality is that potentially, let's say five or a bit more years ago, um, um, SMEs, small to medium-sized businesses or enterprises, they could get cyber insurance. Now it's very, very difficult for them to get it. But I think the key to, to the key to sort of asking your question is, of course, the value. What's the value uh, of cyber insurance for SMEs? And I think there's immense value. And I think it comes down to, to a couple of things. One thing, and probably the thing that stands out the most, is cyber insurance offers SMEs um, services and, and security support that they would not otherwise be able to, to access or, or to, to secure. A key finding from, from some of our research was that larger organizations, they will buy a cyber insurance policy because to be honest, they understand and boards understand insurance. They understand the value of insurance. So to be honest, some boards might understand the value of insurance better than they understand the specifics of security. So they would buy cyber, they would buy cyber insurance, but they would not call upon their cyber, even if they have an incident, they would not call upon their cyber insurance policy unt, unless the breach is significant. Now, for an SME, for a smaller organization that doesn't have an IT department or that has one person or a quarter of a person responsible for security, the value of cyber insurance is that if they get breached, they can call one number, so they can call up their cyber insurer, they can say they've had a breach, they say the insurer will respond by connecting them to an incident response team, a digital forensics team, a, a breach, breach response council, um, a PR firm, um, a data recovery company, all basically this entire suite of expertise that there's um, there's probably no way the average cyber insurer would be able, the average small business rather, would be able to uh, afford on its own. So I think that is the key value. This sort of, it opens this expertise that would just never ever be on the table. I think that's the key value I think for cyber insurance. But like I said, the challenge now is that um, because the insurance industry has been so so stretched because of you know ransomware these other these other threats. On uh, for right now, on average, the, the average cyber the average um, SME can't get insurance. So I think the key thing now is to try to hopefully get the market in a place where we can get uh, in, um, SMEs be able to dip into cyber insurance once again because it's immensely valuable for them. I want to, uh, uh, it's great information, Jason, and clearly uh, you have your finger on the pulse uh, of this and do, guess what, research <laughs> on this. So I, I want to I get a picture from you of the types of research that you're working on. Um, maybe a deeper dive into this, what, what areas of cyber insurance are you looking at? So. And how do you do that? Do you go in looking for a specific answer? Do you do you have a feeling that you're trying to uncover and validate? Do you have um, some proof points that you want to dispel? What how, how, what's the approach? What are you looking at? Uh, and we'll start with the cyber insurance stuff. What 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 things are you doing there? Yeah, I think so. One the, probably the key thing that I'm I'm exploring or I've been exploring at the moment or I've been exploring for like for a couple of years now is the interaction between cyber insurance and security. A part of that has been ransomware um, because, so I remember a couple of years ago and this sort of kicked off one of the products I'm, I'm sort of working on in this question about everyone believed that cyber insurance was the reason that, or not everyone, a, a large proportion of individuals believe that cyber insurance was the reason that ransomware was getting as bad as it was getting. So myself uh, and some colleagues, we basically explored this question. Uh, the way how we explored it and a lot of my research involves actually talking to the people involved. Um, so I'm a massive believer, going back to once again, the human element to some extent. I'm a massive believer that some insights can only really be uncovered by sitting down and having really frank, really upfront conversations with people. Each individual, especially the individual that we speak to, has such a wealth of expertise. They've worked on insurance, they've worked on ransomware, they've worked on government policy, all the different areas for such a period, such an extended period of time. I find these conversations valuable. So a lot of my research now really is based on interviews, focus groups, engaging with people who are working with these problems day in, day out to better understand them and better understand how we can actually tackle these issues. 
So in, term, in terms of um, some research now, looking at ransomware and cyber insurance in terms of uh, has ransomware, has cyber insurance led to this, led to the, let's say, the exacerbation of the threat of ransomware? Um, from my findings from that, no, it has not. Uh, yes, it had some limited impact. We can't deny that because insurance does um, provide uh, businesses with money or capital that they wouldn't have had um, if, they, if they had been hit. But the reality is that many insurers don't just say, oh, you've been hit, here's the money, go and pay. Many insurers will say, well, okay, let's look at what we can do to bounce back before we even think about payment. And I think that is quite critical. Many insurers will also say, hey, we have a suite of people that we can call in, try to find out what's going on, and hope we can get you back on your feet before even discussing or, or opening a conversation or opening a dialogue with attackers. So that, that's one of the key ones. Um, another thing that I'm trying to focus on, that I'm focusing on right now, is um, uh, cyber insurance and SMEs in particular. Um, like I mentioned, I think there's immense value that, that uh, cyber insurance can offer to SMEs. But I think that we don't really have a good understanding of that currently. Uh, so a lot of my, a stream of my research is really on trying to understand that. What is the specific value? What's the ideal touch points? What questions should the insurers be asking? Uh, how should insurers be engaging with SMEs? Are there specific types of SMEs? Are there specific controls or control sets suitable for SMEs? In the UK, for example, we have, um, we have something called Cyber Essentials. Uh, and this is sort of government-backed, uh, let's say, securities standard to some extent, uh, which is recommended for SMEs. But I'm aware that, you know, internationally, I'm not sure if such standards exist. So from country to country, you might have various different guidance for SMEs on how to be secure or how not to be secure. So I think the question for me is, how do we better understand companies from that perspective and how do we better support SMEs in the context of cyber insurance, given how valuable it can be? That's fantastic. I mean, you're really looking at the problem from a lot of different angles. Um, I was wondering, because I know that when I've been doing um, human-centered cybersecurity research over the last eight years or so, um, and I've covered a lot of different topics, it seems like when I'm, I'm going and reading research papers that have been done on the topic before, I always come across a paper that has Jason Nurse as a co-author. Um, it just happens, it, it, it just happens. So I know that you've done quite a bit of work in other areas other than uh, cyber insurance. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of those other interests in um, recent years. And I know you've also um, um, expanded some of those into um, you know, kind of informing government policies and, and, and kind of putting out some resources for practitioners to use. So yeah, if you could just talk a little bit about some of those other things you're looking at. Yeah, of course. Um, I think this is this is this is a sort of um, definitely an example of, of what I like to do in that the reality is that um, I love being academic because I like focusing on interesting stuff. Uh, and I won't lie, there have been many days where I've woken up and I've thought, oh, research on IoT security sounds interesting. Let's do some of that for a couple of years. Or mm, research on AI does sound quite interesting. AI seems to become a big, let's do research on that for a couple of years. And, and to be honest, I, I love it. And it keeps, you know, some of it's a quite steep learning curve, but, but you know, it really is super interesting. But uh, some topics I focus on. So one is probably, uh, if you go back to Ayashi IoT, um, smart home security. Um, this, this is, you know, whether we like it or not, um, smart devices are going to be in our homes. Um, we won't have a choice, so we have to engage with them. But the reality, of course, is what are the security and privacy implications of the devices in our homes, uh, and what, how do they pose, how do they put, uh, expose us to risks that we haven't considered, or the average person hasn't considered? Um, I remember about uh, about five years or so, uh, I needed to buy a new TV, and I went into the shops. I went, I looked online. And I could not find a TV that was not a smart TV. Impossible. Impossible. Um, and I think this is this is a really good example of the reality. Um, I think Shawy, we mentioned sort of connected cards. And you know, so there's for me, there's this idea of uh, so smart homes, understanding the risk there, understanding the risk to security, privacy, and implications for that. Um, another big area that I am fascinated about is um, how organizations communicate as it relates to um, it when they suffered a, a breach or a cybersecurity incident. Because um, I've seen that many organizations communicate in many, many different ways, some of which might not be as 
as nice or, or as appropriate as, as they could be. So I think that's also another uh, key area for me. And then probably um, I am very interested in, uh, I mean, there's so many, I'm just, I'm just sort of, I've lost my train of, train of thought, but I was, I was maybe just to stick with those. Those are probably a good set. Well, what we're going to do uh, is we'll link to your profile and any, any uh, other web links you want to share, Jason, that uh, people can go to to find some of your material. Yep, and uh, of course, a lot of your work is is uh, part of what Julie's uh, preparing and, and delivering as part of her work at, at NIST. So we'll include links to her program there and uh, some of her deliverables and and uh, and other uh, things that companies should should uh, explore. I, I want to um, want to take this moment. Uh, we're going to wrap here. <clears throat> the cyber insurance topic. Um, but I want to take this moment to let folks know that the two of you are going to be together again in Virginia at an event <laughs> with other researchers uh, looking at this this fascinating world of human-centered uh, cybersecurity. Um, you're both speaking there. It's called Impact 2024 Conference. Um, I don't know, Jason, you want to kind of give an overview of what that is and, and uh, what the two of you have going on there. Maybe you can say where you're yeah. speaking about. Julie can share her, her session. Yeah, of course, of course. And thanks for mentioning it, Sean. Um, so Impact 2024 is essentially a, a, a collaboration between uh, CyberSafe, uh, NIST, MITRE, and the National Cybersecurity Alliance. Um, and the key thing about Impact is, I think the key, the key gist of it is, we recognize that there's a lot of, Academic conferences where academics sit and want to meet academics. We recognize that there's a lot of industry conferences where industry people come and want to speak to industry people. But the reality is that there's not any, as we can find, clear conferences or, or, or basic meeting places for academics and researchers to talk about the exciting stuff that they're doing to an industry audience. And the entire gist of impact is to really try to or, or to basically um, cement uh, and, and bring academic research and put it in front of the people that really would love to use it and would love to engage with it. The, from, from, I mean, we've run this conference for the last couple of years now, and every time we hear industry folks basically saying, the stuff that they're doing, I would love to do it, I just don't have the time. Like, why is it taking so long to put this insight in front of me in terms of what, what academia is doing and how it can be valuable to me and my organization? So I think for this, for me, this is the key value. It's sort of this key event, this networking event, this, this gathering where researchers, so for example, like Julie, myself, and others could come along and engage with industry professionals that have clear industry-focused problems. And we can come to really start, begin a dialogue. And I think, Julie, do you want to talk a little bit about your, your session in particular? Sure. So, so my talk is actually um, covering exactly the purpose of it. It's, all, it's about the purpose of impact, that bringing research and practice together. Um, so at NIST, um, this past uh, year or so, we've been doing some research about the research practice gap. Um, so looking at... Um, you know, how can we bring this human-centered cybersecurity research insights so that it can be implemented into practice? Um, I know that I was a practitioner for a long time, and I didn't know about any of this research. Um, and when I became a researcher, I thought, wow, like this stuff could have really helped me in my work, but I just didn't know about it because um, I didn't, you know, I didn't know where to look, didn't have the, necessarily the time to look, wasn't sure like what I would do with it, how I would implement any of that. So we've been, we've been looking at this, this kind of gap, this disconnect um, from both the practitioner perspective. I mean, you know, what do they think of human-centered cybersecurity? What are the challenges that they have implementing that in their, in their daily work? And then also the human-centered cybersecurity researcher perspective. So how are they collaborating with um, practitioners throughout their entire research life cycle? And are they doing that, right? Are they... Um, are they consulting practitioners when they're first thinking of a research topic so that they make sure that's relevant? Are they um, consulting them when they're kind of developing recommendations to make sure those are actionable um, and practical in an operational context? And are they, you know, putting out research outputs that are 
geared toward practitioners in a form and a language and a venue that practitioners will have access to. Um, so that's what I'm going to be talking about is some of our research results. I love it. And um, Julie, I mean, that's why I'm so excited about this subseries <laughs> with you looking at uh, the research. I mean, as you noted, many practitioners may not know that the research exists and if it does, how to get a hold of it and more importantly, put it to practice. And uh, I'm excited to to see what uh, what else we get to talk about in, in future episodes. And I, I definitely want to thank uh, Dr. Jason Nurse for being the first guest as uh, part of this, uh, part of this, we'll call it a series and uh, super important topic. Love the work you're doing, Jason, and uh, thrilled that we were able to pull this together along with, with Julie from NIST and uh, excited for more of these conversations. So uh, for those listening, be sure to uh, subscribe, share with your fellow practitioners and, and security leaders and anybody else who would be interested in this research um, from NIST and Jason and others. And... Uh, yeah, thank you both for, for a great conversation. Really appreciate it. And Julie, thank you for being a fabulous co-host for this conversation as well. Thanks. And thanks, Jason. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. All right. Stay tuned, everybody. We'll see you on the next one. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at Devo.com. Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at Imperva.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Cybersecurity with Sean Martin, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share this show and ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to connect your brand with our conversations, you can sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Insights, solutions, and networking all come together at RSA Conference. Join a global cybersecurity community at rsaconference.com forward slash ITSP MAG24.